Good morning once again. How's everybody feeling today? Average. All right. C minus. Okay. Well, let's see if we can, we can fix that. Uh, open your Bibles. Go ahead and Genesis. We're going to Genesis 39 is where you're going. So Genesis, if you uh, don't have a Bible with you, like I said, there should be a seatback Bible. And Genesis right in the beginning of the book. So just open the front and then just start flipping past table of contents. You'll hit Genesis. You're going to Genesis 39. Uh, while you're turning there, I'd like to thank um, those uh, people who actually who were just up on stage and many more uh, with them, our worship team, who serves and loves uh, our church, who uh, helps us to, they are not just uh, Christians who play music up here. They are people who want to lead us into the presence of God, who help us to focus on uh, and dwell in the presence of God through the gifts and talents God has given them uh, musically. And so everybody on the worship team, uh, thank you for everything that you do. I say this all the time, but it is... Um, really a lot easier to come up here and preach a sermon after being led into worship by our worship team. Like, it's just, they make it easy to come up here um, and, and know that God is moving, God is, God is doing things uh, in our midst this morning. And so, thank you very much. Uh, if you are interested in jumping in on the worship team, uh, we'd love to get you connected with Daniel so you can use those connect cards, and we'd love to uh, get you plugged in and, and get you some more information about that. So, um, All right, so we're going to be in Genesis 39. We started last week. We're doing a short series on the life of Joseph uh, and his resiliency in the face of hardship. And so we talked a lot last week about his family, his family history, and his family, to sum it up, is a mess. There is uh, infighting and hatred and jealousy. His brothers hate him so much that they wanted to kill him. They see him walking and they say, let's kill him. They hate him so much. Their father uh, played him as the favorite, gave him uh, nice gifts, gave him this fancy jacket. They hated him so much they want to kill him. And then they decide, well, instead, let's back off of that. We'll rough him up and we'll throw him in a pit and we'll just let nature take its course. And then when the opportunity arose, they decided to sell him to traders to do whatever they wanted with him. And when we last left Joseph, he was sold into slavery in Egypt. And the brothers went back to their father with this coat that they hated so much, covered in blood, and they tell him, well, your favorite son got killed by an animal. He's dead and gone. And that's Joseph's life. That's a a small shot of Joseph's life. It's constant hardship, constant chaos. Yet in light of all of these developments and the fact that things are about to get even worse for Joseph, he is faithful. He is consistent. He shows us what it means to trust in God no matter what happens, to trust that God is in control, no matter the circumstances, no matter the outcome or the decisions that happen. And so this morning, we're going to see Joseph sitting and doing a lot of waiting and trusting. And when all hope looks to be lost, he is faithful and consistent. He is in a spot where he has no control over anything that's happening to him, and all he can do is trust in God, which is a good but really hard spot to be in. And so as we go through this morning, um, I have, uh, there's, there's five words, uh, five I-N-G words, gerunds, if you will, for the, the English uh, fans, uh, that we're going to kind of focus on to help kind of pinpoint where we're going this morning. So we have, uh, I'll, bring, I'll point those out as we go along. So that's, uh, that's the plan this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we can jump in and get to work. So please, bow your heads and uh, pray with me. God, we thank you for another day. We thank you for this chance to gather together. You are good, and you are good all the time. God, we come here this morning to hear from you. 
to encounter you, to meet with you, to spend time with you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would pour out so that we could be wise stewards of the gifts you have given us, of the knowledge, the information, the challenge, the encouragement, the rebuke that you have for us this morning. Whatever it is, wherever it is that you need to meet us at this morning in your word, God, I pray that we would respond, that we wouldn't just hear things, we wouldn't just learn facts and figures, but this morning we would hear from your word and be motivated to respond to it. God, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So like I said, when we last left Joseph, he was sold into slavery. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 39, uh, starting in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Joseph was saved, sold, as I said, to a man named Potiphar. Joseph was bought. He was an object, and regardless of the influence and role he has in Potiphar's life, he is still just a purchased object. Um, I go back and forth when I go to like Home Depot and Menards. I go back and forth with like house automation and technology. Where some days, like I get in those, and I want to be able to control everything from my phone, right? Because you can do that now. You can control your lights. You can control the locks on the doors. You can control your windows, the temperature, everything. Like you can turn your house into like a robot house. And sometimes I'm like, yes, do it all. That would be cool. And then other times I'm like, no, that's really scary, and the robots are going to take over, and that freaks me out. But technology is advancing in such a way where we can do that. We can give little details, little things, and we can cast them off and let technology take care of details. Technology can handle your finances, can monitor, uh, can direct your entire life by just dings on your phone with your calendar, with appointments and reminders. You don't have to worry about the details so much because the robots will do it for you. And until they overthrow us, we are in control of them. So as soon as that app on your phone or that, that you know, voice command thing doesn't work, whatever the piece of technology is, as soon as it stops working, we can cast it aside. We can get rid of it. It was their purchased objects. No matter how helpful they may be, no matter how helpful they may be to making our lives simpler, they are purchased objects, and as soon as they fail us, we can get rid of them. That was Joseph to Potiphar. Made his life a lot easier. Controlled a lot of things for him, but at the end of the day, he is a purchased object. But that object was a blessing and a positive addition to Potiphar's life. We see in verse 2 that the Lord was with Joseph. He became successful. Potiphar saw that. He saw that Joseph, everything Joseph did, he had success in. And so Potiphar gave him more and more influence over his household. And because of that, Potiphar's household, his field, his livestock, all of the things he owned were blessed because of Joseph. Verse 6, it says, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. 
I've said this before. When you become a Christian, you are saved from hell to be a blessing to others. You, wherever you are, in whatever season, whatever situation, can be a blessing to others. Life doesn't have to be exactly as you planned it for you to do the will of God, for you to be a blessing to other people. Joseph did not plan to be a slave, and yet he chose to live well and live in such a way that blessed those around him, even the man who owned him. Joseph did not let his negative situation define and control how he lived, how he worked, how he carried himself. Wherever you are, in whatever situation, whatever season, where you live, where you work, where you go to school, do not get caught up in, once I get these things handled, once I get settled, then I can worry about serving, then I can worry about being a blessing, then I can worry about caring for other people. Once I get my bank account set up and taken care of, once my education is done, once I get that next promotion, then I'll work on taking care of other people and serving them. No, you can serve, love, and care for others right where you are right now. You are called to be a light of the world now, not later. And one of the simplest ways you can do that, one of the simplest ways you can love and bless other people is to pray, to pray for others. Make a prayer list. Pray for people in your life. You have access to God the Father. You can go on their behalf to him, lifting their concerns and requests and wants and needs and desires. Even if you don't know all the details, you can pray for people. You can be a blessing to other people. Verse 6 says, God blessed the Egyptian on behalf of Joseph. God blessed someone who was taking part in the evil of owning another human being. God still blessed his house. You have the ability, Christian, to shape and change the world we live in by living your faith out, and it can and will directly affect those who don't know Jesus. They may even be blessed because of how you live and who you are. You have influence in this world because you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Even in an ugly, unfortunate situation, Joseph was a blessing. That's our first keyword. I forgot to give you that at the top. Blessing. Joseph was a blessing to others. He was a blessing to Potiphar and Potiphar's household and Potiphar's land and Potiphar's livestock. He was a blessing because the Lord was with him. The Lord is with you. You can be a blessing. You are called to be a blessing to others. Second word is fleeing. Fleeing. We'll continue in verse 6 here in Genesis. Second half of verse 6 says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fleed and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as he saw that he had left a garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie, to me, to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. 
And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment behind me and fled and got out of the house. Joseph was good looking. He is a godly man who looked good. He was a catch. And even though he's just a Hebrew, as she refers to him, and a slave, Potiphar's wife liked what she saw. She propositioned Joseph, not once, but multiple times, and he turned her down. And when he gives her the reasoning, look at verse 8 and 9. He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Potiphar has given me everything. I am as well off as a slave can be. It's like we are equals in this house. Why would I mess any of that up? And that ending in verse 9, why would I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph is thankful for how Potiphar treats him and the authority and the lifestyle he gets to lead. But Joseph still knows that at the end of the day, to do this would be to sin not only against Potiphar, but against God himself. Because sin at its core is a decision to rebel against God, to not trust God, to believe that your way is better than God's way. It is his relationship with God, it is Joseph's relationship, even in light of his current situation, that drives the decisions of Joseph at all times. And so we see in verse 11, Joseph and Potiphar's wife are home alone. She makes a move at him, grabs his garment. I envision he does a sweet spin move, gets out of his jacket, and runs. Verse 12, he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Paul, in writing to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And when he's writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee means get away from it. Put yourself in a different physical place than the temptation. Put yourself in a good, positive place. Don't knowingly put yourself in places where you will be tempted, where you can find yourself in a bad situation. If you struggle with alcohol, don't go to the bar. If you're having trouble maintaining purity with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, don't be alone in the dark watching Netflix all night. Certain people in your life have influence, have negative influence on you, lead you into temptation. Cut those people out. Ask questions like, what media am I consuming? What people are influencing me? What situations am I putting myself into? Don't put yourself in a place where you're going to be tempted, where you're going to give Satan a chance to tempt you because he's going to take it. And he might just lure you into a false sense of security. He might let you get away with it once or twice. He might let you convince yourself, I'm strong enough to fight temptation. I'm, I'm tough enough. I'm brave enough. I can do this. I can handle being in these bad situations, and I can still maintain. And then all of a sudden, you turn around, and you are chin deep in sin. Now, behavior modification alone is not going to eliminate all sin from your life. If you want to sin, you're going to find a way to sin. That's why you've got to ask the question, what's the root? Why am I seeking my satisfaction outside of God in this way? But a good first step, like Joseph, is flee. Get away from it. If you are in a situation where you have a choice to make, good or bad, just get out. Remove the quandary. Remove the question. Run away. Take a walk. 
put yourself physically in places and peop around people where temptation is not an issue. Joseph gets away from Potiphar's wife. He is fleeing. He is bailing out. And I'd like to say that's the end of it. There's no consequences and everything's fine. But that's not the case. Because after this incident, Potiphar's wife calls some of the servant men to her and explains to them and to her husband Potiphar that it's actually Joseph who made the sexual advance. She screamed, she fought back, and he ran away and she snatched his coat off of him and that's why she still has it. And at the end of the day, who's Potiphar going to believe? His wife or the slave? Jump down to verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So to recap, Joseph has gone from favored son to in a pit to sold into slavery, and now he is a prisoner. And even this reality of him as a prisoner is actually, though, a sign of God's providence. It's a sign that God is working through Joseph and in Joseph's midst. Because a slave attempting to rape his master's wife, that's an immediate death penalty. That's not even a question. But the fact that he just landed in prison, even if it's a life sentence, shows the favor and respect he had gained for Potiphar, for the way that God's grace has flowed through Joseph. And it also shows to a degree, that we'll see a little bit later, that Potiphar, I don't think, entirely believed his wife. But nevertheless, Joseph is in jail. But we see in verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And of course he did. God was with Joseph in the pit. He was with Joseph as a slave. And of course he's going to be with Joseph in prison. None of these horrible incidents or situations change or alter how God is going to care for and use Joseph. He is working all things together. You see, hardship is not always a sign of God's displeasure. Yes, when you make sinful choices and you have to deal with those consequences and those consequences bring hardship, that's one thing, but hardship is not always a sign of God's displeasure. Sometimes God is just working through these things because God is always God. He is always providing, always at work, always achieving his good purposes in and through us. And so once again, we see Joseph being a blessing even while he is suffering. Joseph is suffering in prison. We don't have a whole lot of details. And even though, again, he has favor, he's in prison. He's suffering. And he's being a blessing. He finds favor with the head jailer. He is the head prisoner, basically, in charge of how things run there. He is literally the inmate running the asylum. But do not, again, mistake the lack of details of lifestyle that he was living for an idea that he wasn't a prisoner. He was. He was captured. He was not seen as a person. He had no rights. 
There's not a description of this jail cell that he's in, but chances are, in theory, it's really just a big hole in the ground that a bunch of prisoners lived in. This wasn't like padded jail cells where each had their individual space. This was a big hole in a room that they, stuck, that they all had to live in, a dirt floor. There was no hope for appeal. There was no chance of getting out on good behavior. He had no rights. He had no future. As far as he knew, this was the rest of his life. But God does not leave him or abandon him. And Joseph never stops trusting, never stops living like he trusted in God. Even in his suffering, Joseph trusted. And Joseph was able to be a blessing and care for others around him. And that's what we see. We see Joseph trusting. He trusts God. He is always trusting in God. Go to chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, Potiphar, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So we see the cupbearer and the baker did something to offend Pharaoh. These are two guys in charge of Pharaoh's food. So they're, maybe they tried to poison him. Maybe they just cooked a bad meal. We don't know, but they end up in prison. And the reason they are in jail, really it doesn't matter what it is. Because it really has nothing to do with them, and it has nothing to do with Pharaoh at the end of the day. Really, they are in prison because God orchestrated it because they needed to have an encounter with Joseph. This is God being in control at all times. He is orchestrating this encounter. And so one night, both men have a dream. They don't know what to do or what to make of this dream. And so Joseph, though he is a prisoner himself, wants to care for his fellow prisoners, wants to care for people. He wants to see their life be marginally better, and so he wants to hear the dreams to help give them an interpretation. Remember, it was dream interpretation that put Joseph in the pit with his brothers, right? He had those dreams about his brothers and how they were going to be bowing down to him, and his brothers hated him for it, resented him for it. So once again, there's a dream interpretation opportunity. Now, last time, this didn't end well, very well for Joseph. We'll see how this one turns out. And so the cupbearer goes first. And the interpretation, basically, he tells Joseph the dream, and Joseph tells him, well, here's what your dream means. It means that in three days, Pharaoh is going to restore you to your place. In three days, you're going to get released from this prison. You're going to go back to being the cupbearer of Pharaoh. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And when that happens, I have a request. And Joseph says in verse 14, only remember me. When it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that should put me into the pit. He says, you're going to get restored. Everything's going to be fine for you, cupbearer. Help me out. 
Put in a good word with Pharaoh. There's no reason I should be in this prison. I shouldn't even be in Egypt, and I just want to go home. So now it's the baker's turn. And the baker has heard this whole interpretation from Joseph. He's heard that how the cupbearer is going to get restored. And so the baker's excited. He's saying, all right, my turn. And so the baker tells Joseph his dream. Joseph says, well, I got bad news. Your dream means that in three days, Pharaoh's actually going to kill you. Pharaoh's going to have you hung. Sorry. And so we see three days later, it's Pharaoh's birthday. It's a big feast. It's a big celebration. And Pharaoh needs his cupbearer. But apparently he didn't need his baker. And everything plays out in those three days, just as Joseph said. The cupbearer is restored back to his position, and the baker is hung. Everything happens just as Joseph told them it would. But then we see in verse 23 at the end of the chapter, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He's so excited about, you know, not dying. He forgets about his promise to Joseph. He forgets about the request Joseph made. And so Joseph is left sitting in prison, rotting away for a crime he did not commit in a land that was not his home, abandoned and betrayed, written off and forgotten about by everyone. The only person who maybe considers Joseph these days is his dad, and that's only because his dad thinks he's dead and he's mourning the loss of his favorite son. And we see in the first first verse of chapter 41, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Now, we don't know how long Joseph was in jail for before the run-in with the cupbearer and the baker. It's at some time. But we know after that interaction, it's two whole years he sat in prison waiting and hoping and praying that he would be freed. Every day, Joseph woke up hoping it was the day things were going to change. Every day, hoping the cupbearer may be remembered today and put in that good word. Maybe something would change and all of this would stop. Or maybe this was just all a bad dream and he'd wake up and he'd be back at home with his sweet multicolored jacket. Day after day, Joseph realized it wasn't going to be his day. It wasn't his week. It wasn't his month. It wasn't even his year. There was no one there for him. You ever been there? You ever been in that spot where hoping things would change? Wanting, wishing, praying, begging, pleading, fasting, doing any and everything you can to change your situation. And finding nothing changes. You're just in it. With no end, seemingly no hope in sight. That's where Joseph found himself. Joseph suffers. Watching the hours of his life tick away until Pharaoh has two dreams. You can go and read the details of them yourself. I'll summarize them for you. Pharaoh has two dreams. The first one is about seven full, healthy, plump cows. They're grazing. And then seven ugly cows show up, and they eat the seven fat cows because they're thin and hungry. And then he wakes up from that dream, freaked out, goes back to sleep. He has another dream. And there's seven stalks of corn that are healthy and full and ready to just be slathered with butter. And then there's seven ugly, 
thin stalks of corn that have been wind burnt and, and disgusting and somehow one stack of corn, the ugly thin corn eats the healthy corn. I don't know how corn eats corn, but it happened. And we see in Genesis 41 verse 8. So in the morning his spirit, that's Pharaoh, was troubled. And he was sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So now what do we do? Now what do we do? There's no one to interpret these dreams. And then, light bulb moment. Verse 9 says, The chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of captain of the guard, when, he told, when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And he interpreted us, and as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. You ever have that where you're going about your day? A couple nights ago, I was home, and I was playing, and I was playing with Benji, and, and Sarah came home, and we were talking, and I don't even remember what she said, but she said something and this light bulb went off my head, and I sprinted out of the house because I remembered that I had ice cream sitting in the, back of the house, in the back of the car that I had forgotten to bring in for an hour and a half. And so I went running out and grabbed the ice cream and threw it in the freezer. I just had that moment where, oh, ice cream. I have that moment a lot. That's what happens to the cupbearer. Pharaoh has this dream, these two dreams. No one can interpret it. And all of a sudden, two years later, uh-oh, I remember. I screwed up. And that brings us to our last word, and that's redeeming. The cupbearer tells Pharaoh about Joseph and the dream interpretation and everything that happened. Pharaoh sends for Joseph. Joseph gets the chance to take a shower after two years, comb his hair, put on some new clothes, get out of prison. Even for just a few moments, he gets out of the pit. He languished and anguished for years and years, probably felt like God had forgotten about him. But God's timing is perfect. And when the right time hits, everything falls into place almost immediately. Let's get down to verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Those are the first words we've heard from Joseph in two years. He's not bitter. He's not angry, apathetic, indifferent. It'd be understandable if he was. But instead, his response is one of humility and trust in God. He responds, it is not in me. Literally, it is apart from me. It has nothing to do with me. Yes, I can do this dream interpretation thing, but it has nothing to do with me. It's not my skill. It's not my ability. It's not about me being impressive. It's God working in and through me. Verse 46 of this chapter tells us that Joseph is 30 years old during this interaction. And when we started this last, last week, he was 17. So it's been 13 years he has been a slave and prisoner in a foreign land. And now here he stands, 13 years 
after being captured, he stands before the most powerful man in the land who is asking for a favor. Joseph does not try to manipulate. He simply states what he knows. His ability to interpret is from God, and God is about to do something miraculous here. Joseph does not complain or blame Pharaoh. He does not ridicule or blame God. Joseph takes the opportunity to glorify and honor God, even in light of the last 13 years of hardship he has endured. Joseph is faithful and focused on God, not wavering or wandering from him. Why? Because Joseph is leaning on what he has seen God do in his own life. He's leaning on what he has seen God do in his dad's life, in his granddad's life, in his great-granddad Abraham's life and the promise he made to him. He's leaning on what he knows about God. In the grand scheme of things, it's very little. And yet, even in the midst of the family turmoil and hardships, even in the midst of how the last 13 years of his life has played out, Joseph has trusted in what he knew about who God was enough to say, I'm going to stay humble, I'm going to stay faithful, and I'm going to believe in God's timing and God's purpose and God's control in my life. Joseph had about that much information about who God was. You and I have this. And we got another 2,000 years of God's faithfulness on top of it. And yet when life gets hard, we question and we swear him off and we forget who he is and what he has done and how he has moved and how he has shaped and how he has caused all things to work together for his glory and our good. Oh, that we would be able to Respond like Joseph does. That we could respond and say, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that was taught us to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's what Joseph did. And because of his faithfulness, God uses him. God is redeeming through Joseph. And so Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. He tells them, look, there's going to be seven years of goodness in Egypt. Fruitful crops, great harvest, healthy livestock, winning football teams. It's going to be awesome. Seven years of goodness. But what's going to follow is seven years of devastating famine. It's going to be hard and ugly. And the fact that these two dreams follow one another that closely, it means it's definitely going to happen and it's coming really quick. So Joseph says, Pharaoh, prepare. Start storing up crops. Start breeding extra livestock. Start planning for the hardness to come. But if you set enough aside, you're going to get through this. The land will be okay, and you will be able to endure the hardship. And we see Pharaoh respond in verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit of God And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves at your command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. 
And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephenath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenatha, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph, was went, Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph, Pharaoh hears this dream interpretation from Joseph and Joseph's plan on how they're going to get through these next 14 years. Pharaoh looks around and says, who are we going to get to run things? Who are we going to get to be put in charge? And Pharaoh realizes he doesn't have to look far. He decides to put Joseph in charge. Only in regards to the throne will I be over you. Joseph literally goes from rags to riches. Joseph, you are no longer a prisoner. You aren't even a slave anymore. You are second in command over all of the Egyptian empire. He even has Joseph marry into the family. God takes what is helpless and hopeless and broken and redeems and restores and renews. It's what he did through Joseph. It's what he did through Jesus at the cross. We were helpless and hopeless, lost in sin. God sends Jesus to die on the cross for our sins in our place to redeem our relationship, to restore our relationship, to renew our relationship with God and with each other. That's what God does. That's what he has always been doing. God takes what is helpless and hopeless and broken and redeems and restores and renews. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And because of that, he ends up overseeing the house of Potiphar. Which means during that time, this shepherd boy learns how to manage finances, how to manage a household, how to take care and set things away and store up grain and store up crops and how to take care of a harvest and how to build on somebody's money. It's going to be helpful in overseeing the seven good years in Egypt. Potiphar's wife lies and Joseph gets thrown into prison. But because of God's favor, he ends up supervising the prison. He has the experience of caring for those who literally have nothing, which is going to pay dividends during the seven years of bad hardship when he's got to oversee and care for all the people who have nothing that the famine wiped out. This is what God does. He takes what seems to be lost, useless. He takes painful events, moments, and years, and he turns them around for his glory and our good. Some of you this morning may be in a season of darkness where you feel like you don't know where God is or what the next step is going to look like. Maybe some of you just came out of one or you're just walking into one and you still have no idea what God did. Maybe you came out of it and you say, all right, I'm out of the storm, but I have no idea what the point of that was. And it was hard and I'm exhausted and I don't know how God is going to be glorified through all this. God does not waste time. He does not waste his time. He does not waste your time. He is always at work. He is always moving. He is always putting all things together for his good, for his glory and your good. Even in the darkness, even in the chaos, even sitting, not knowing when or how or what comes next, God has proven over and over and over again that he is trustworthy, that he is faithful, 
Jesus at the cross is the embodiment of that. God promised Adam and Eve way back thousands of years he was going to send one to deal with sin, and he did. He kept his promise. He keeps his promise. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins in our place and rescue us. Brothers and sisters, trust him. Believe him. Rest in him. No matter what this life may offer you, no matter what darkness awaits, no matter what darkness you might be in, God is at work. He has not forgotten or abandoned you. He is redeeming all things back to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know you are good. You have shown us over and over. We can study your word and see time and time again your faithfulness, your goodness, your generosity. We see in you sending your son to die for us the grace and compassion and love and justice. God, help us to trust you more. God, I don't know that any of us are going to have a 13-year span like Joseph had. We will experience hardship. We will experience pain. Lord, help us to respond as he did, to be focused on you, to be learning, to be growing, to be using all of these moments, all of these situations to glorify you. God, just help us remember who you are. We forget so often. We forget so easily. We get so distracted. God, thank you for being constant. Thank you for being consistent. Thank you for showing up all the time, for being intimately involved in our lives in this world. That just when it looks like darkness is going to win, and nothing good can come from anything, you step in and remind us who you are. You show us who you are. God, help us to trust you. And Lord, for those who haven't started in that trust, who haven't leaned into trusting in you for their salvation, let that be step one this morning, that anyone who doesn't know you, who hasn't tasted and experienced how good you are, how trusting you are, Lord, let them this morning come to realize that you sent your son to die for them. That if they would put their faith in Jesus, their sins are forgiven. There is new life to be had there. And Lord, for those who have put their faith in you, who have trusted, who know that you are good, Lord, help us. Help us when darkness comes, when hardship comes. Help us to remember to be grounded and stay rooted in you, to abide and dwell in you. God, help us to focus ourselves on you. God, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done for generation upon generation that we can look to and be reminded of, for what you have done in our lives, what you are doing right now in our lives. And Lord, we thank you now for what you're going to do because we know you're going to move. We know you're not stopping. We know you're not done being at work in this world. And so, Lord, we thank you now for your grace, your mercy, your power, your protection. Lord, you have called us. You have made us to be lights. Let us go and shine brightly, knowing that we can trust and rest and rely on you. 
pray all of this because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.